0: Welcome to Temple Bar Gallery and Studios Podcasts. The following is a conversation between artist Lucy McKenzie and curator Poor Guy Moore on the occasion of her solo exhibition, Tour Donas. For the full video
1: and images of the exhibition, please visit our website, templebargallery.com.
0: So Lucy, um, can we talk a little bit about the, your experience in the, pa- in the Painting Institute in Brussels. It seems to have been, in 2007, a kind of turning point in your own practice and a move into the applied arts in general. And since several of the pieces in this show feature things like trompe l'oeil painting or faux wood texture, etc., perhaps you can talk a little bit about them in relation to the training that you received there and how that kind of fits into your practice in general.
1: So I had had a conventional art school education in the 90s and had started to do my own experiments into decorative painting in my own studio and just reached a kind of impasse where I couldn't go any further on my own. And by wonderful coincidence, I discovered this private school in Brussels, where you could do a really intensive six month course in fake wood, fake marble, lettering, gilding. And so I undertook the course for six months and it just gave me this insight into everything that could be done with traditional painting materials, working in a more kind of procedural technical way and the way that those kind of limitations or structures could be put to more kind of imaginative ends which I wanted to do while still staying uh, kind of true to the intentions of that kind of education so really kind of obeying the rules but seeing what you could do conceptually with especially the content the things that you painted or where you applied it what you put it in uh, comparison with and then also how you examined the role of the artist and the kind of character of the contemporary artists today. And so there's a lot of elements in the show that relate to that education. For instance, the work coats on the wall. uh, they were designed by me and my partner, Becca Lipscomb. We have a design company called Atelier EB, which is E for Edinburgh, B for Brussels and from the beginning of the company I knew that I wanted to always make things that related to workwear, and to make a label that was very true to the reality of the kind of clothes that we needed especially in Scotland or Belgium which means a lot of like layers because it's can be cold and damp but then conceptually this history of the work coat as well uh, relating also to say the lab coat of a doctor Uh, the way that it gives you immediately a sense of kind of identity and especially authority. Uh, You know, the Milgram experiment, people uh, were persuaded to inflict pain on someone else because they were told to do so by a man wearing a white coat. It's very powerful. And in the school we were taught that the white coat is a symbol of your uh, identity, your self-respect, and uh, but it's also something you worked in so instead of wearing just like paint spattered jeans you actually went to work and you had this uniform yeah
0: you also mentioned that um idea that when you were in the school the notion of the the idea of a a modern artwork or a contemporary artwork was almost used in a disparaging way to describe a bad piece of trompe l'oeil as though this notion that the, 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 the purpose of the artwork was to emulate something else. So it had a very almost utilitarian aspect. And these pieces here, uh, we'll talk about the house later on, but they contain a sort of combination of, of elements. So in this one over here, there is a, there is a painting, of a there's, a there's a reproduction of a Martha Donas postcard in this one over here, who really has kind of become the cipher of the exhibition in a way. So Martha Donis came to Dublin in 1914 and stayed here for two years. And she studied at On which is a stained glass sort of cooperative studio. So in, in many of the photos you see of Martha Donis, she's wearing a work coat. So I find the work coat is this kind of recurring motif throughout the exhibition, something that you and I kind of discussed, and it's one of the nice um, sort of serendipities of this collaboration with you. A number of these visual and conceptual motifs have kind of arisen throughout the the process but you mentioned something while referring to atelier eb and that was edinburgh and brussels which kind of points to notions of um centers of activity that aren't necessarily dominant metropolises or historically haven't been considered the center or the locus of activity can you talk a little bit about that idea of um, provincialism or things that are maybe in more marginal locations and how that has influenced or shaped your aesthetic position over the last two decades.
1: I would say first of all it's probably a symptom of growing up in Britain, in Scotland, in you know I grew up in a time in the 80s where you had all these pop groups that celebrated being a kind of local provincial loser and the dignity in that, whether that was, you know, the Smiths or these, but there's something in kind of written into British culture that is about the, the um, yeah, the dignity and the, the validation of being someone from a small town and uh, having lived in smaller towns, Glasgow and Brussels, studying in Dundee, I've just always seen the value in the the work that's made there that can be kind of micro-narratives. Uh, I've never been attracted to live somewhere like New York or London, uh, even Berlin for longer times, because there's just there's a world of interesting things happening everywhere. And those minor histories, those minor stories are just as valuable. And especially somewhere like Belgium, which is a place of of hybrids, it's written into the the DNA of the country that it's a strange conglomeration of Dutch and French and German and British culture kind of meeting in the middle. So being any idea of kind of anti-establishment, anti-purity, then you can do a lot with this material that you find in smaller places.
0: So, as with every exhibition you have these situations where elements arise that seem to resonate or echo or somehow respond to the architecture and here with damaged abstract as you pointed out there are some nice visual kind of connections with the architecture of the gallery the, the damaged uh, pillars and also this sort of faceted window um, but the painting If I understand correctly developed in a way as sort of an abstraction of the marbling technique as as did these. I mean it looks like it could be in a sort of municipal space, a train station or a bus stop as a sort of mural which also ties into your interest in muralism but maybe you could talk a little bit about the process involved in in making this and also the idea of a damaged artwork.
1: So first of all the idea to make these kind of especially framed abstract paintings, was a continuation of an interest in the decorative. Uh, there's a long-standing uh, discourse within kind of modernism about uh, the, kind of the, the, the supremacy of abstraction over say figurative art as being like more modern, I mean this is a historical discussion. And while I absolutely love abstract art, I do associate it with also being extremely decorative and being in domestic homes or being yet in like murals to decorate public spaces. It has an absolutely decorative function, which has often been a bit kind of suppressed or it's not really wanted to be spoke about in those terms to kind of elevate the value. So I wanted to make some uh, abstract paintings to continue this conversation about décor and the decorative and art to inhabit a a domestic or semi-domestic space rather than just in an art gallery or a museum but I have no idea how to make an abstract painting I mean that's a whole discipline on its own so I came up with a formula I'm always the same way as with the school with these kind of uh, techniques and um procedural forms, I devised a way to approach making an abstract painting, which is I would just take a a picture of a piece of marble that I liked. And then I would go through my kind of recipe book from the school and identify all the colours that I would use if I was to make a trompe l'oeil rendering of that piece of marble. But instead of then having the palette with all the colours mixed and applied with all these special brushes in the right layers, instead I would take those colours in their purest form and then just very systematically looking at the piece of uh, the, the reproduction of the piece of marble as inspiration, go from one corner to the next and kind of produce this abstract image. So hopefully with this frame it shows that it's in a way like a quotation of an abstract painting rather than something to be kind of examined on its own but within another kind of totality. And so, yeah, that's the process to kind of come up with these compositions. So they're kind of inspired by nature. They're inspired by marble. And then the case of this big one here, yeah, the damage has been applied uh, to give the idea that this piece has existed somewhere, it's had a life uh, with this the patina of, uh, of time. Like many, many murals, we encounter them in a state of a disrepair. Uh, and But we read that as beautiful, we read that damage as part of the life so true to an idea of kind of truth to material which is part of modernism. In modernism we see fragmentation and we see damage and subversion as, like, as beautiful. And so yeah, it was great to put it here in the gallery where you see this damage on the pillars. And of course we accept this damage as beautiful, it's in these load-bearing Uh, pillars it should be here it's kind of fit it has a fitness because it's truth to materials we wouldn't read it so much as beautiful if it was just on the walls because it would be kind of cosmetic so i wanted to tap into this kind of hierarchy of value that we think about when some forms of damage are beautiful and other forms are not and they're actually kind of shameful or they
0: should be remedied so after martha donnas left dublin in 1916 she eventually relocated to Paris, where she changed her name to Tour Donas uh, in an attempt, I suppose, to embrace a, a more androgynous pseudonym to, to, I suppose, gain traction in a very male-dominated art world. And um, this wall drawing, which you executed after Adonis, um, a reclining figure, was produced around that same time. So I know it's sort of, she's a, 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 sub, a sort of subject of shared interest for both of us, but maybe you could talk a little bit about what it means to channel or inhabit someone else's work or someone else's aesthetic. It's something that seems to run throughout your, your practice. I know in 2003, Uh, You had a solo exhibition, the title of which is Brian Eno, so this isn't the first time that there has been a sort of um, a very intentional selection process and then almost like an inhabiting of Precedent
1: So the impulse to appropriate are multiple and some of them are rational, some are irrational some are driven by pure kind of desire to to understand, to understand by inhabiting by copying as uh, sometimes it is done as a kind of um, yeah like antagonistic gesture or it's definitely meant to be
0: um provocative
1: provocative but i've always in uh, but what i like about appropriation is that you're absolutely obliged to do so with a certain amount of kind of responsibility you know for instance i have i have taught and I would never appropriate the work or ideas of, say, a student, because that's, that's exploitation. So to take the name of, say, Brian Eno, or to copy a Nazi mural, it's just like in satire, you're kind of punching up. Somehow for the, for the action to work, there has to be an awareness of a kind of power relation. But at the same time, sometimes it's done purely as this act of like veneration mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, desire or adoration um, or a desire to understand. When I do things like make a replica of a Madeleine Vionnet dress, it's to be close to her. It's to understand more clearly the depth of her genius. And it's to go through this humbling process of seeing just how much labor goes into a couture dress. Or, you know, to make these paintings to see that, know, this is not the same as a Marta Donna painting. This is done in a much more kind of cynical or conceptual way and I, I hope that you can you can feel that. I don't have the expectation of these works that someone like Donna would have had about hers. And I love to do a wall drawing like this. I love when there's an ambiguity between, you know, is it an artwork? In this case, it is a it's a display device. It came out of our conversation about the show. What happens when you borrow or, or you you bring together works that were maybe perhaps made separately, and to to uh, recognize the importance of display. Um, you know that phrase it's just window dressing, which is disparaging, but. Any good exhibition maker absolutely understands the power of display and how that connects to say the commercial field or it has this um, negative connotation connected to say seduction or uh, manipulation but the act of making this this wall drawing very quickly with the kind of confidence stroke that only probably I could do in this situation it couldn't be kind of just bring in a sign painter to do it, to deliberately leave all this chalk dust, uh, charcoal dust on the floor to, I hope, to bring a certain kind of freshness or dynamism to the show by having this obvious gesture of like spontaneity or um, the confidence to just leave the dust. These are really important little kind of points to just kind of bring an exhibition together and activate the space.
0: So if one of the key reference points in the exhibition is Martha Donas, Tour Donas, the other is the villa, which you purchased in 2014, which is located in Ostend. And several of the pieces in the exhibition are elements of furniture from the villa, which is now a, a site of creation for you, a sort of reciprocal creation. Could you talk a little bit about your relationship with the house? and the, the pieces of furniture that are included in the exhibition.
1: So the chair here is a replica of one of the chairs that was in the house when I purchased it. I'm not sure what it was made for. I could imagine it was made for a children's room because it's pretty small and uh, there's something just very kind of childlike about the, the design, these bright colours and yeah the the house bought it in 2014 in the process of restoring it faithfully as i'm obliged to do because of the law with uh, patrimony and the the desire is to to do something which is long term it's a very very like deep commitment i mean financially time wise but also creatively that the house becomes the site of all to bring together all these elements over the years as you say from doing a show called Brian Eno to then like inhabiting the house and remaking the work by the architect who made the house but it's with the the recognition that every restoration is a kind of a fiction anyway that every historic house which is uh, this remade this especially if it's open to the public it is a it's a fabrication it's it's something that uh, there's no kind of there's it's impossible to get back to a kind of original form and of course what's important is if a house that's made for a certain function in the case of the Oivar it was built for a family a large family that were at the heart of the Ostend Flemish establishment you know a doctor a catholic and so then to take that house and do all these other things with it that a project space does not have to be in an old industrial building. It can be in a beautiful villa that is never going to be a blank space because of its history, because of its design, and see how different people can respond to that very, very specific context.
0: So in our conversation towards this exhibition, for a multitude of reasons, one of which was Pandemia, the window was always a real focus of the exhibition, a kind of anchoring point and one that we really wanted to prioritize, display and particularly window dressing are of huge significance and interest to you. Can you talk a little bit about um, how that interest in in window dressing has manifested in your work over the last number of years?
1: So through having this small fashion label, Atelier EB, where we're just, you come into contact with display, with mannequins, all those kind of questions about yeah, retail and uh, distribution, display and I just realized that it was something that has always been a kind of topic of interest to artists uh, and especially fashion as a kind of foil, fashion as this kind of symbol of say hypercapitalism, capitalism um, but also something that artists are absolutely obsessed with because of its connection to mass culture and through this kind of digging and research, just got more and more interested in display as a discipline, partly because retail as we know it is in its death throes, the city centres, department stores, so you start to notice window display as a kind of noble craft, just like decorative painting, as soon as as it kind of slides out of use, you suddenly realise how precious it is, and it's actually a very um, rigorous discipline with a history of its own, and an ecosystem and pre- skilled practitioners. So it's not just because Andy Warhol did when made props for window for window dressers that it's relevant. It's because of this whole history, which is under researched, is under discussed, and it's something that we all share and we all have a kind of personal memories with. Part of how we become who we are as a young person is through trying on all these identities and like shopping and buying shit. I mean, that's that's how we kind of find out who we are as a teenager. The
0: masquerade.
1: Yeah, and then thinking about the way in museums, the way certain design objects are placed. So you'd, for instance, get a Charles Rennie Mackintosh chair, the designer from uh, the arts and craft designer from Glasgow. It may be combined with a painting by his wife, Margaret MacDonald, or you'd have a Klimt painting in a museum next to a sideboard by Joseph Hoffman. But you would never for instance get a bucket seat next to a Picasso or something, it's very particular moments where art and design are kind of brought into symbiosis in the kind of grand narrative of of art history and, uh, and how it's presented in museums, so I just love to to work with these fluctuating borders between art and design, between display and a kind of Uh, art object, what is it that defines something as, yeah, merely window dressing or something more substantial, and so this opportunity to do something in this extremely busy part of uh, Dublin and have this big window, as you say, in the pandemic, when perhaps people couldn't enter, it just made total sense to, to activate the window as an important site, to catch people's attention, but also conceptually to underscore this idea of these being kind of commodities, and they've been specifically placed like a design, like in a furniture shop.
0: So the art historian, Leah Pires has described the house as an ambivalent object, which you've sort of appropriated uh, to make your own and to activate as a site for new production creation. Can you talk a little bit about um, how you imagine responding in the future to, to, the, to the house. I know you, you said that the architect, is it de Broecker? His archive has been destroyed, so there's almost a lacuna of information about him, which you are kind of filling in these speculative ways. Maybe you can elaborate a little bit upon that.
1: Sure, so the architect died during the Second World War, and because of his uh, relationship with the occupying Nazis, The archive was destroyed, Um, he was written out. I don't know if it'd be written out, but basically, there's, as you say, a big absence of information about him. There are some existing houses and designs, but the Oiva is by far the most uh, representative. And I have this ongoing interest in things like detective fiction as something like uh, trompe l'oeil painting, which is something with procedures which, when followed correctly, create an uh, illusion. You know, they're satisfying. It's hidden the mechanisms of how they're constructed if they're done well. So this kind of mystery around the house, this absence of archives and information, it is a vacuum that I can fill, of course, kind of within limits. I mean, it's, uh, I'm aware of uh, to be sensitive around the, the, the facts that exist and the family and these things. But, it, and again, it can be, it's a, architecture is a truly collaborative thing, so I get to work with Kirsten Dam, the Belgian photographer that documents the house, and she will continue to document the house, and her wonderful photographs are part of that creation. I mean, in this picture here, she just so brilliantly captured the way, this wonderful design in the house that I'd never really appreciated before, that when the, the street lamps project at night, there's these, this projection of these patterns on the wall, which I would love to feed back into my own work. And yet yeah, this mystery of the house, the fact that it was languishing, that it was for sale for so many years, that the, the Belgian state didn't want to take it on. It falls on an individual. Uh, all these things are part of a kind of narrative which I'm happy to uh, accentuate or participate in?
0: Well, this also idea of a speculative history, I mean, it's it's connected really to the thematic of the exhibition, so this filling in of the the, the gaps or the elaboration on, it, it, it's really the idea is not, let's say, art historical accuracy, but rather to invigorate uh, a moment that is maybe undocumented or unknown.
1: Yeah, and the house invites it because built into the design of the house is this invitation to inter- intercede, interject because itself is such a hybrid. You have these elements which are ecclesiastical and then postmodern, neo-gothic. Uh, some of the bits of the house look like the lobby of an art deco cinema. There is no kind of like true form to be uh, adhered to. It really invites, invites this conversation to kind of continue the, the mix of all these styles and I think Kirsten Dam just captures it so beautifully with her work, her photography of the house and she'll continue to do that as the house is restored.